0: This is episode 479 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. Each of us, when presented with the call of Christ, goes through certain stages in our commitment to Him. This happened with all the disciples, even Peter. We start out optimistic and full of hope, and then, if we're not careful, we end up sad and apathetic and discouraged because things didn't turn out the way we envisioned them in the beginning. Or we begin our relationship with Christ at a full sprint with reckless abandon, only to lose our fervency over time as we see others do the same. But that is not the way our life with Him was designed from the beginning. If you remember, we were bought with a price and we no longer belong to ourselves. We are now His and His alone. In this study, we'll look at how long it took Peter to move from part-time follower to literally forsaking all for the Lord. It was a gradual process of letting go of what we know and embracing the unknown by faith. And as it was with Peter then, so it is with many of us today. So join with us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Before you get that, Wayne, we're in uh, John chapter 2, and uh, this is the continuation of several days. John chapter 1 talks about a first day, and then verse 29 says the next day. Then verse 35 says again the next day. Verse 43 says the following day, and then chapter 2, verse 1 says on the third day. And it talks about this wedding in Cana that we looked about last week. I'm just going to read the first Uh, 10 verses to you. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there, but both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. We're going to find out later on that so were his brothers and Mary's family. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. As we talked about last week, we're looking at uh, 120 to 180 gallons of wine. Jesus said to them, he didn't touch them. He didn't do any hocus pocus. He didn't draw any attention to himself. He stayed in the background. Draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made of wine, he did not know where it had come from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. We talked about how Christ reveals himself to those who serve him first. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. Verse 11 and verse 12 are transition verses. It moves from this story to the next story. Verse 11 says, This beginning of signs, or attesting miracles, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him, not the groom, not the bride, not the people who were divided guests. Mary already believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, Uh, he, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Then there's a transition here where we move to verse 13, which we're going to be talking about a little today, mostly next week. It says in verse number 11, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him. And after this... He went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Wayne, if you can hit that uh, light in the back, I want to show you just a few things about the landscape here in the time of Jesus. This is the land of Israel during uh, the time of Jesus. This is called Judea. This is Mecklenburg County. Between Judea and Gaston County is an area called Galilee. You have Judea, which makes up all of this area. You have Galilee, which is a smaller area. Judea is subdivided into Idumea And up here, which we're concerned about later on, Samaria. Because when the Jews would travel from Jerusalem and they were heading north, they would not want to go through Samaria because that's where the half-breeds were and they didn't even want to get the dust of Samaria, Samaria on their feet. Jesus, of course, spent most of his ministry in Galilee. Here is Cana, there is Nazareth, there is Nain, where he raised uh, the widow of Nain. Let me go ahead and, uh, uh the widow's son of Nain. Let me uh, focus this a little bit more. Cana, Nazareth, Nain. Capernaum is right here on the Sea of Galilee. Um, you've got this, the... the you know, it's called the Sea of Tiberias in Scripture and other areas. It is beautiful. I had a, I had a chance to go see it when I was 40. It is quite large. It's beautiful blue. Um, there's storms that come up really quick. Most of his ministry was in Galilee, and this town right here is the town that Jesus made his hometown in the very beginning of his ministry. You've got the Sea of Galilee, and you've got this Jordan River that goes all the way down. If I go back one here all the way down into the Dead Sea, where it's the lowest point of um, elevation at that place. It's, it's just the Salt Sea. It's pretty amazing right here. Masada, of course, if you ever go to Israel, is where they take you to this Jewish fortress, which is the last holdout of the Jews. It's pretty uh, amazing story. And the Sea of Galilee, I mean, the uh, Dead Sea, if you've ever been in it, it um, you can actually, without a flotation device, you can float on top of the water, All the way across the sea, if you want. Here's the Jordan River. John was baptizing, of course, in the Jordan River. We're back up in this area where the story unfolds. We're in Cana of Galilee, and after the wedding in Cana of Galilee, Jesus being from Nazareth, he and his disciples went to Capernaum, which is over here. This is what the Sea of Galilee looks like from Capernaum. If you're standing on the shore, This is uh, pretty much what it looks like. It is absolutely gorgeous. If you go to Capernaum today, there's no real city anymore. All it is is this tourist trap here, this um, site of, uh, they believe, St. Peter's home. And what you have here is you have the remains of the synagogue here. You've got these other buildings off to the side. You've got this center area here. And under this, really it's a church right now, under this church, About 20 or 30 feet underground is where you have um, the remains of what they think was Peter's house. This is another view of that. Here's the circular church area. There are the remains of the synagogue. As you notice, there's nothing. There's no city. There's no towns. It's just an agricultural area now because it was once a fishing village, but not anymore. Here's a close-up shot of some of the remains of the synagogue that was there in Capernaum. This is this area right next to where Peter's house is. And you can see the people gathering there. It's all up under here. You can look from the from the outside and then you can go up in this building and look down through the glass and see something that's kind of cool. There's another picture of it. Here's what it is if you're looking from the side. And again, there's just an excavation and they were able to find certain artifacts that pointed to the fact that Peter actually lived here. This is inside that octagon building looking down. And you can see some of the remains looking straight down into the house area. And that's kind of what it looks like from um, from the top. But this is what Peter's life was like. This is what Jesus saw when he got up in the morning. This is when the ministry took place here. And when Peter went on the shore, or when Peter, James, and John were on the shore, and Jesus came and asked them to put their boat out a little bit, or he stood on their boats. It was on a shore much like this. This actually is Capernaum here. And if you'll notice, uh, it's a beautiful sea. It's got some mountain range here, but there's absolutely no towns or villages or Walmarts now. If you can hit those two lights. I just want to give you an idea of what's happening here before we move on. Any questions about that? If you, uh, if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, you should. I was hoping we as a church could do that at some point in time. But um, it's kind of an awkward time to go right now. Maybe we need to wait until Trump's elected and they, you know, all that kind of stuff. The next story that we're dealing with is the cleansing of the temple. Jesus did not do this just once. As a matter of fact, this is, there's two cleansings of the temple. There's one in the beginning of his ministry, and there's one at the end of his ministry. The account that we have, of course, is at the beginning of his ministry. John the Baptist points and says, this is the Son of God. You need to follow him or the Lamb of God. Several of John's disciples follow Jesus. Andrew runs and finds Peter. James and John join the entourage. You have Philip and Nathaniel, So there's at least six disciples. They go to Cana. They see this. Wedding that takes place and Jesus turns water into wine and the disciples believe in him. They haven't followed him completely or committed their lives totally to him, but they believe in him. Then they go all the way from Cana, you remember, all the way from up here with him in Capernaum all the way down here. The legend here is 20 miles. So you're looking at 20, 40, 60, 80 mile trek that they follow Jesus as he's there cleansing the temple for the first time. Uh, at the end of his ministry, during his last Passion Week, he, of course, cleansed the temple out also. But it was a very public act. It was a very violent act. And Jesus always did it alone. I love this. He always was protecting his disciples. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you will look at the Mark 11 account, um, of it really shows it better the mark 11 account of jesus cleansing the temple it begins in verse number 15 and again this is the second cleansing this is after the triumphal entry and jesus did the same thing with the first cleansing mark 11 verse 15 so they that's jesus and all his disciples and his entourage that's following him of who knows how many people and they came to jerusalem now, there in Jerusalem, the triumphal injury has taken place. The fig tree is already withered. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. The others were with him, yet it wasn't a mob action like it is in some of the newscasts we have today and various lootings of cities and stuff of that nature. This was a Jesus going in and doing this. The other disciples just watched. It says, Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. And implied, Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he, just Jesus, would not allow anyone to carry wares to the temple. Then he, not the entourage, not the disciples, but Jesus, taught, saying to them, "'Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves?' Then the scribes and Pharisees heard of it and sought how they may destroy not the disciples, not the entourage, but him, for they feared him because of all the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening had come, he, implied with the entourage and the disciples, went out of the city. So back to John chapter 2. That's the second cleansing. The first cleansing is here in John chapter 2. The second cleansing is on the verses I have written here. Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19 talk about the second cleansing. And this, all, this takes place during the Passion Week. Jesus does a triumphal entry. One of the things he did was cleanse the temple. Um, he began his ministry that way and he basically an- ended his ministry that way. But in both of these cleansing, it was he who did that. John chapter two, verse number 14. Um, and he found in the temple, and we know there's disciples with him, found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and money changers doing business. When he, not, not a mob action, not everybody else, made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves. I think it's pretty amazing the words that are used here, they're violent words. They're words of extreme action. He drove them out. He poured out the changers' money. He overturned the table. It was a pretty violent act. The disciples that were with him, of course, had not fully committed to him. They believed in him. They were following him. But at this particular point in time, it wasn't like they forsook everything. They followed him. Then it was time to go back. They went back to fishing. They went back to their jobs. Jesus would do something else. He would come by. They would join him again. It was kind of like our relationship with him now, where we spend some time with him and then we don't, and we have our own lives and then we don't, and then we we try to spend some more time with him, but our own lives kind of clouded out. They were the same way in the very beginning. So there's no surprise that he's the one that did all this in the first cleansing, The surprise is the fact that it was the same M.O. in the second cleansing, Jesus protecting his disciples. I don't want them trying to kill you. I don't want them trying to destroy you because very soon I won't be here to protect you anymore. So I'm going to go in and do this myself. And then we have these two transition verses, which is what we're going to focus on today. And um, I never saw this before. I'll be honest with you. I was studying this and these words just jumped out at me. And as I've been sharing with you, If you ask questions of the texts, if you try to put yourself into the text, if you're wondering why the Holy Spirit actually meant for that phrase to be in there, why do we have that information? Why did he want us to know that? There's some sort of truth here that's hidden. And I had that experience this week, actually it was Sunday night as I was going over these notes, and uh, I'm really excited about sharing it with you. First transition verse. The beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. Okay. And he manifested his glory. He revealed his glory to them, showing that who he was, it wasn't public. He was behind the scenes. He didn't make a big deal about it. He didn't announce it and say, look what I have done. Praise God. He just did this and everybody was blessed by it. And his disciples believed in him, just like you believe in him. And I believe in him. And somebody who just got saved believes in him. What does that mean? Well, we believe in his word. We believe in his truth. We believe that he is who he says he is. We believe that I I don't think he's the son of God. I haven't really got to that point yet because I don't really make that confession of him until Matthew 16 when Jesus says, who do the people say that I am? Well, some say you're this and some say you're that and some say you're this. Well, who do you say that I am? You're the Messiah, the son of God. Gotcha. I mean, it's not until later on in the ministry they actually verbalized that, but they were thinking, but they were believing, but they were having a hard time fully committing like you and I are. Even after this event that takes place, verse 17 says, then his disciples remembered. Oh yeah, this is why he's doing that. What was written in the word in Psalm 69, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you were doing these things? They didn't arrest him. They didn't carry him out and beat him up. I mean, they didn't do any of that kind of stuff. If you and I walked into Walmart and started knocking over shelves and throwing produce on the floor, they wouldn't come up to us and say, why are you doing this? They would tackle us and arrest us and take us outside because we weren't wearing a mask. You know? I mean, it's, what would happen? That's not what's happening here. God's protected him even at this time. So Jesus gives them the sign, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jew says, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? And the disciples were probably thinking the exact same thing. Who is this guy we're following? What is this strange remark he's making? 46 years for Herod the Great to build this temple, and he's going to build it in three days? That is absolutely impossible. John lets us know that he was speaking of the temple of his body, and then says, therefore, when he had risen from the dead. They didn't even understand this sign until years later. When he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, And they believed the scripture and the words what Jesus had said. They were even struggling. So when it says the disciples believed in him, chapter 2, verse 11, it doesn't mean I believe in you. You're the son of God, the king of Israel. I will follow you everywhere. I mean, Peter said that I would even die for you and deny he even knew him. Have you ever been there? Made those commitments to him. Made those promises to him. I will follow you wherever you'll just answer this prayer request because I believe you, I believe you can do anything. And then it doesn't turn out the way you want to or you sin or something happens and you feel this gulf between you and then all of a sudden you feel like I I violated my vow to him, it'll never be the same. And you have to understand you're in very good company because the disciples felt exactly the same way. Now watch this. The second transition verse, verse number 11. After this, he went down to Capernaum. Okay, I got that. No, 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 you don't understand. Holy Spirit wants us to know, not just him, not just him. It It was him, and it was his mother. We know his mother went with him and his brothers. I didn't even know they were at the wedding. As a matter of fact, in the first part of this chapter, it talks about the fact that the mother of Jesus was there. Verse 2 says that Jesus and his disciples were invited, but obviously Jesus' half-brothers were there also. Doesn't say anything about his sisters. They may have been there too, but his brothers were there and his disciples. So we've got Mary, we've got his brothers, and they're listed several times in the scriptures. There were four of them. We know we have some sisters and we know two of their names, but uh, not the rest. And we know his disciples were there and they did not stay there many days. Of course not, because Jesus packed up and wanted to go down because the Passover was at hand down in Jerusalem where he started... Um, knocking over tables and driving people out of the temple. His, his disciples believed in him, but it doesn't say anything about his brothers or his mother. Now, we know that his mother knew who he was, so we assume that she believed in him because she had the annunciation from Gabriel. She, you know understood all of that his whole life that's why she came to him wanting him to do this miracle but his brothers had lived with this older brother named jesus for 30 years so until they went out on their own and never one time saw him said I know around the table, they talked about the coming Messiah. And as they read the scriptures saying someday the Messiah will come. And when he comes, he'll defeat Rome and we'll all be free. And every Passover, the empty chair. Maybe it's tonight. Maybe it'll be this year. Come Messiah. And I'm sure when they said that, Mary never said, well, here this is him. But don't you know, she had this funny kind of look on her face because she knew. She was just waiting for him to be manifest. And Jesus, of course, was there among their midst. And yet, even though this miracle took place, and Mary knew who did it, Mary may have even told the brothers, that was Jesus. That was Jesus manifesting his glory. Because Jesus never told him not to tell anybody, as he did in other instances. The fact is, nowhere does it indicate that his brothers believed in him at all. As a matter of fact, we see that elsewhere in Scripture, that Even as Jesus began his ministries, the brothers of Jesus mocked him. The brothers of Jesus almost wanted to get him in trouble. The brothers of Jesus were embarrassed by what the people were saying about him, and they were pushing him, like many believe Judas did, pushing him to make yourself known, make yourself the king, if by some chance you know, if you're really the Messiah, then just get it over with and show everybody. It's the temptation of Satan. If you truly are the son of God, stand on the pinnacle of the temple so everybody will see you and jump down. Because when the angels grab you and not let you dash your foot upon a stone, then everybody will know. Look what happened in Matthew chapter 13. When he come to his own country, he's now in Nazareth, own country is Nazareth, and when he's in Nazareth, of course, the people rejected him there. He taught in their synagogue, so they were astonished, astonished at what he was teaching, and said, where did this man get this wisdom and mighty works? I recognize this guy. Isn't he the carpenter's son? Wasn't he Joseph's son, who obviously died years before? Is his mother, is not his mother called Mary? And his brother's aren't they here also? James and Josie, who means Joseph, Simon and Judas, whose other name is Jude. Didn't you know that they were there? And his sisters, are they not all with us? And if so, where did this man get all these great things that he says? When he went to Nazareth, They recognized who he was. They recognized that he was special. And yet they realized that he's one of them. He lived just down the road. I I remember his father and there's his mother and his sisters. And we went to high school with his brothers. And But even at this point, they didn't believe. John chapter 7, five chapters after what we're looking at now, says this. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. If you remember, that's Gaston County up at the top because he didn't want to walk in Judea. That's Mecklenburg County. That's where Jerusalem's at. That's where the the institution of Judaism at. That's where they want to kill him. That's where they want to take him prisoner. He's walking in Galilee for Jesus did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. That's a fact, and they all recognize that. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. Well, again, the picture here, Galilee at the top, and uh, Judea at the bottom. He's staying in Galilee. Did not want to go down to Judea at this point in time because there's a hostile crowd towards him. But the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand, so his brothers said to him, "I know you don't want to. Uh, I know you don't want to go to Judea because they're going to kill you. But you need to go down there anyway. Just kind of stick it to them. You know, let's go ahead and and if you're really the Son of God, go down there and just let's just, just be done with this. Just make it all happen. Depart from here and go to Judea. I just told you." that they wanted to kill me there. And you still want me to go, sure, that your disciples may see the works you're doing. Well, they already are seeing the works I'm doing. Yeah, but we're not. We don't really buy into this. So why don't you go do that? Next two verses. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be openly known. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Cast yourself off the pinnacle of the temple so the angels will... will pick you up and not let you hit the ground, then everybody will believe they were echoing the temptation in the garden. And John wanted us to know that even at that point in time, his brothers didn't believe any. Why? I mean, why wouldn't you? Was it jealousy? Was it sibling rivalry? Was it they're the ones that always got in trouble and Jesus never got in trouble? You know, well, maybe Jesus told on them all the time. Man, that doesn't sound like the Lord, does it? And tell on us why. Did they ever come to faith? And if they did ever come to faith, how did that happen? We only know of two that came to faith. There may have been more, but we only know of two that, uh, that actually came, became believers. This is a most amazing passage. Paul is relating to the church there the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And what he's doing is he's talking about all the people Jesus met because they were accusing Paul of not being a disciple because in order to be a disciple, you had to have seen the Lord. And so he's listing all the people that Jesus saw during those 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. And at the end of it, he wants to say, and he saw me too. I mean, I saw him on a Damascus road, so therefore I am an apostle. Yeah, I am one that's chosen because they were disputing his claim. And look what he says here. For I delivered you first of all that which I also received. Here's the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. That he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scripture. And then he was seen by Cephas which is Peter. I remember one of those uh, aha moments happened to me many many years ago when I was reading about the resurrection of Jesus, and I remember reading where one of the angels um, uh, told the Marys that were there, you know, to go tell your disciples and Peter. Singled him out. Peter wasn't with the disciples. He was probably weeping bitterly because of the denial that he did. And, And here we have Jesus. One of the first things he did is he meets Peter alone to restore him. He was seen by Cephas, then by the 12, that could be the upper room, account here. After that, he was seen by over 500 people at once. This may have been at the ascension. There may have been over 500 people there, yet only 120 hung with him enough to go back into the upper room, of of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep or some have died, yet there's still 500 witnesses rolling around. After that, he was seen by James. This is his brother. Then by all the apostles. Really? So there's a difference here between the 12 and what's phrased apostles. And we won't, I won't elaborate on that, but the fact is the 12 is, when you see the 12 in scripture, that is a distinct disciples that we see that follow Jesus for three and a half years. Yet there are other people called Apostles. Barnabas was called an apostle. Others were called apostles. So there's this other group of sent ones, of called out ones that's following Jesus. At last he was seen by Paul, one born out of due time, which I was followed him in the beginning, but I didn't, but I did follow him after the Damascus Road. So Jesus makes a personal post resurrection appearance to his brother James, who became, of course, the leader in the church at Jerusalem and was known for his immense time he spent in prayer, so much so that um, early Christian writings of the first century said that he was referred to, do you remember that phrase, what they call him? Camel knees, because his knees were so calloused from praying so much to his Lord, who happened to have been, in this life, his half-brother. So we know one of them got saved. Then we get to the book of Jude, in the book of Jude, he introduces himself this way. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, pretty much everybody does that, brother of James. I am the brother of the half-brother of Jesus, which means I am also a half-brother of Jesus. But James was uh, Jude was so humble that he wouldn't even call himself the half-brother or the brother of Jesus. Instead, he just made his connection with James, who by this time had already been martyred. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, to the brother of James. So what we know is that for three and a half years, Jesus went around doing good and preaching and teaching and healing, and um, his mother knew about that. His his disciples believed in him, yet in the very very beginning had not totally committed themselves to him, and his brothers didn't even believe in him until not only after the resurrection, but after the resurrection, and James got a personal visit from the resurrected Lord, and it may have been James that led Jude to Christ. We don't know. Isn't that amazing? So what about the rest of the disciples? What was their life with Christ like? Now, here's what we think, because this is what we see in the movies, because the movies don't want to drag it out too long. Cost too much to have extras and the scenes get all confusing and everything. So Jesus comes and says, follow me and I leave everything and I follow him. Well, that's what happened in Matthew chapter four. Right after the, the temptation and Jesus is going around in their synagogues and healing people and all that kind of stuff happens, preaching repent and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then he meets two sets of disciples, two sets of brothers and they leave everything and they follow Jesus. So then we assume that that's how it happened all the time but it didn't. It was actually two calls that were made to the disciples. They followed him once, and they kind of followed him like you and I do, and then he called them again, maybe even a third time, and not everyone fully committed to him and has that phrase attached to their name and forsook all for him. In John chapter 1, they, we see them following Jesus. Let's just look at Peter, John chapter 1, verse number uh, 40. One of the two who heard John speak, a disciple of John, and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated to Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah, you shall be called Cephas, which is translated stone. Okay, you changed my name, but you haven't necessarily called me to be fishers of men here. You you haven't asked me to to forsake everything for you. I'm in this process of learning and trusting and growing closer with you. I'm going to follow you enough to go to Cana and see this miracle. I'm pretty awed at that, so much so that I believe in you, but the level of my belief is something just shy of total commitment. I'm going down to Jerusalem and seeing some things happen. But the fact is, I don't, I, I'm, not, I'm not quite there yet. I have a house. I have a wife. I probably have children. I have a business. I have responsibilities. I can't just follow some itinerant rabbi around because it's, it's, that's not going to help me at retirement time. So, so what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do which is the same thing that most Christians today are in. They're We're caught in this world and that world. We're told that if we just forsake everything and follow Christ, he'll take care of all our needs. But we're not satisfied with that because we don't want him to take care of our needs. We want him to take care of our wants. And if he... If he only promises to take care of our needs, then maybe the car I drive, the house I have, the money I have, the vacations I take, the clothes, the food that I choose to eat, a lot of those are wants, and so I'm not willing to give that up because we never give that up in America because our self-worth is tied up, especially as men, and what we've done and who we are and our pedigree and the initials behind our name and stuff of that nature. Same way with them. Exactly the same way with them. We're just going to look at Peter because Peter's listed quite a few times in Scripture and we can see, you know, what was Peter thinking? I mean, Jesus pursued Peter, Jesus went after Peter, Jesus spent more time trying to get Peter to believe in him and commit to him than he did Matthew. Or he did John. Or he did some of the others. He may have seen this leadership quality in Peter. He may have seen what Peter would become. But as we go through this, you're going to find with Peter, there's a gradual letting go of the old life and embracing the new life. So if you and I feel guilty because we haven't let go of the old life or part of the old life yet and embraced the new life, neither did Peter. It took him a long time. And even when he did, he went back and denied he even knew the Lord. And then after Christ restored him, he went back to fishing. You remember? And Jesus had to go back again. Peter, come on, dude. Do you love me more than these? Big catch. 153 fish. For some reason, the Holy Spirit wants us to know how many it was. I mean, that's a lot of fish in one of these boats. And watch what happens here. John chapter 1, Peter is introduced to Jesus. Jesus does not say, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Jesus does not say, you're a sinful man. Jesus does not even say to him in John chapter 1, follow me. He says that to Philip, but he doesn't even say that to Peter. Yet Peter was so engaged, maybe because of who Jesus was, or some compelling call he had on his life, or maybe the excitement of Andrew, or maybe the fact that James and John were his fishing buddies were going to go too, Peter decided to follow him to the wedding in Cana. I mean, after all, he was invited. And why wouldn't you go to a wedding that lasts for seven days and it's free wine and free food and dancing and fun and There's no movies, there's no television, there's no football games, there's no video games. Probably the most exciting thing that happened in their life all year. Why wouldn't you go? All right, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go with Jesus because Mary, his mother's there. We also know now that Jesus' brothers are there, and so are the disciples. So he's following Jesus. He witnessed the miracle of Canaan, so much so that the Holy Spirit tells us that Peter believed in him. What does that mean? Well, he believed in him, just like we believe in Jesus. Well, is that belief unto salvation? Is that belief unto sanctification? Is that belief unto total commitment? Did he believe he was a good man? He was a moral man? He was the coming Messiah? Did he believe he was the son of God? What does it mean he believed in him? And Peter's reaction to that is based on what he meant by believed in him. Is Jesus all everything to Peter, or is Jesus just something really cool that I want to align my life to after I've taken care of all of my secular duties, you know, on my weekends or my days off or or after I finished working? How does this all work out, even with Peter? Even as a part-time follower of Christ, and that's my phrase, follows him to Jerusalem, that's a week-long trek. So they're heading down there. It's 80 miles to Jerusalem, and they're on they're on donkeys, or they're walking probably most of the way, and they're heading down to Passover with thousands and thousands of thousands of other people. They're having conversations during the time. They're probably asking Jesus questions, and he's answering them. Jesus is probably talking to Peter a lot because he's he's centered on Peter. He's going after Peter, just like he went after. You and I, but even then, after the, the temple's cleansed, they didn't understand because it says that they remembered. Oh, yeah, after the fact, I remember. Um, it, it says in Psalm 69 9 that, that zeal for your house has eaten me up. And, and then, all of a sudden, when Jesus gave this sign that tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days, they didn't even understand what that meant until after his resurrection. not that amazing? So if we don't understand all the scriptures, we're in pretty good company. Are we not? After the resurrection, all of a sudden, God, the blinders came off. I see it. I see it. I understand everything now. So Jesus calls these disciples to follow him. And here's the accounts that we see most of the time. The Matthew chapter 4 account where he sees these two disciples, James and John. And he sees Peter and Andrew. He says, follow me, and they follow him. And they even leave Zebedee and the boat and the hired servants behind. You remember reading about that? And they follow him. Okay. We have the same account in Mark chapter 1, but I want you to turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke, of course, did what's called an orderly account. Luke wrote down everything in chronological order as in order to send this orderly account to Theopolis. Luke did not have an agenda like John did, to so Jesus is the son of God, and so he includes those teachings in there. Or Matthew, that Jesus is the coming Messiah, filling all these Old Testament prophecies. But Luke lays this all out like chronological. So in Luke chapter 4... We got the temptation here, begins Galilee in ministry. He comes to Nazareth. We understand that. In Luke chapter 4, verse 31, it says, Then he went down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. Now, turn back to Mark 1, and I'm going to show you exactly what this day looked like. He's in Capernaum, and he's teaching them on the Sabbath. We have in Mark chapter 1, verse... 16. we have these four fishermen that are called. Same account we have in Matthew. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, now we're in Capernaum here, he saw Simon and Andrew's brother casting nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. I already met these guys. These guys have already followed me. Uh, They've been with me. I'm giving this first call here. Jesus said to them, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Here we have that phrase. That didn't happen in John chapter 1. They immediately left him and followed him. When they got a little further, they met James, the son of Zebedee, who was his brother. Immediately he called them, and they left them and hired servants and went after them. We know that account. Then they went into Capernaum, verse 21. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for it taught as one having authority, not as the scribes. And there was a man who had an unclean spirit, and he cried out and says, We know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. You know, you're the Holy One, the Son of God. And Jesus rebuked him, verse 25, and says, be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit has convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they all were amazed so that they questioned among themselves, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For what authority he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Now, as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, They've gone in, they heal this guy, they come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew. So he's called them, they haven't forsook all yet, that I'll show you in just a few minutes. They've they've witnessed the wedding in Cana, they've witnessed this first cleansing of the temple, they now have witnessed this demon guy being the spirit coming out of him, now come on to my house. And so Simon and Andrew bring Jesus To him, his house, along with James and John. But Simon's wife, Mother, verse 30, lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. So now Peter's had his mother in law healed by Jesus. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon possessed, and the whole city had come together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Now in the morning, having written a long time while it is still daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place and prayed. And Simon now is searching with others for him. And when they found him, they said, hey, everybody's looking for you. And Jesus basically said, I need to go to the next towns and I may preach there also because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Peter. Peter has been called. Come, I'll make you fishers of men. After he was introduced to Jesus, your name shall no longer be Peter, but it shall be something else. Now he sees Jesus healing. Now he sees healing the mother-in-law. He sees him knocking over the tables in the... In Jerusalem, he sees him um, healing all the people that come to the town that night. He's gone. They find him after praying all night. And Jesus is going in other towns in Galilee, and Jesus is following him. And yet we read this and miss the fact that Peter had yet to commit himself to Christ. He was following him, but he went back to fishing. Look at Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Verse number 16. Came to Nazareth, preaching in Nazareth. Of course, they rejected him there. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they said, no, we want nothing to do about that. Verse 31 says, he went down to Capernaum. We just read about that, a city in Galilee. And he's teaching in the Sabbath, and they were astonished. And this man with an unclean spirit that we just read about in Mark comes out. Verse 38, same chronology here. He now rises from the synagogue and enters Simon's house. But Simon's wife's mother was sick with a fever, and so he took her by the hand, healed her, and she got up and served them. Then verse 40 When the sun was setting, all those that were sick, all those that had tough times, all those were being healed. And of course, uh, uh, Jesus healed all of those. Verse 42, now it was day. He departed and went to a a deserted place. And he's praying and they're coming to find him. And he says, I must preach the kingdom of the gospel in other cities also because of this purpose I have been sent. Now, look at uh, chapter 5. Verse number one, all of this happens after the events that we read about in Mark chapter one, where he calls them, you'll be fishers of men. They follow him in the synagogue and all that kind of happens. This is the second calling. First calling we have in Matthew and Luke, and uh, our Matthew and Mark, this is the second calling of Jesus to his disciples. And look how this one happens. It says, so it was, As the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. That happens to also be the Sea of Galilee. It's just another name for that. And he saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Well, because fishing was done at night. You don't throw a net on the water. The fish can see the net. They swim away from it. So fishing is done at night. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's and asked him to put out a little farther, a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. G. S. Peter, is hearing all this as he's repairing his nets, and when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, this is a very familiar passage, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Was I, Simon, answered and said, Master, we've told all night long and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the nets." And when they had done this, there came a great number of fish that their nets were breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help. And they came and filled both the boats and they began to sink. Now, Jesus has met Peter. Jesus has called Peter. Peter has followed him part time Peter has this growing faith in him because he's seen what happened in the synagogue. He's seen what's happened to his mother-in-law. He's seen all these other people and demon-possessed people get healed. He sees Jesus' ministry. He's thinking about it, but he's back in his old life fishing. And Jesus comes up and says, you know, I haven't called you to be a fisherman of fish. I've called you to be a fisherman of men. And so there's this conviction going on in Peter. Both boats began to sink verse seven, and when Peter saw it, Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at jesus 's knees, saying, Depart from me for I 'm a sinful man, o lord there's a there's a a recognition there of who Christ is and who I am first time he calls him, Lord, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken now I don't know this for a fact I um I'm, this is my own interpretation of this. I'm thinking about how I would feel. And so Jesus has come and he's shown himself to me and he's done all these miracles for someone else. He has healed my mother-in-law. That's a blessing to my wife. He has healed all these demon-possessed people and that's a blessing to them. These people that are lame that have come up, he's healed all of those people. And you know, you go with the grace of God. That's a blessing for you really hasn't done anything for me because I really don't have any needs, you know, I'm, I'm I'm healthy and I've got a good business going on and everything seems to be doing fine, but nevertheless he's calling me into a deeper relationship with him. He's telling me he doesn't want me to catch fish anymore. He wants me to catch men. But I can't do that, Christ. I can't do that because I have responsibilities. I have a house payment. I have a car payment. I've got families. I got braces to put on my kids. I got grandkids that are dependent upon me. I mean, I just, i know what? I just can't because if I follow you, who's going to take care of all my needs? You haven't asked other people to do that, although he asked Matthew and he asked James and John, but I, I can't because all the miracles that you do and the amazing things that you're doing, you're such a blessing to them but I have needs too that maybe only I know about that haven't even shared with you. And so Jesus performs a miracle. It's basically what you don't think I can take care of you. Look, it's 153 fish and you caught it right off shore in the daytime. After you fished all night long, you tried to do it on your own, and if you'll just let me do it for you, I will meet every one of your needs. As a matter of fact, I will codify that in a statement in Matthew six thirty-three that it said, If you seek me first and my righteousness, I will take care of all the things that I talked about prior to that. Where you're gonna live, where you're gonna eat, how you're gonna be clothed, who's gonna take care of you. And it was almost like Peter recognized that. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, because I'm astonished at the amount of fish that were taken. And so were James and John, the son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. Gosh, that's the calling of a deeper commitment. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. It's that cryptic phrase that changes everything. Now, God is not calling everybody like he called Peter. God is the, the point of this message is not that we all quit our jobs and become itinerant evangelists. I mean, that's not the point of this. The point is the fact that Peter grew in his commitment to him because one of the things that Peter was holding on to the most was fishing. That's who I am. I'm Peter the fisherman. You're not going to do that anymore, Peter. I've got something deeper for you to do. Well, I may be um, I may be a CPA. Okay, but that's not who you're identified with anymore. You may still be a CPA. You may still make a living and be an, accounting, an accountant, but that's not what I've called you to do. I've called you to be my ambassador and my emissary wherever you go. Well, if I do that, I may lose my job. What, you don't think I can supply you with fish time I want? You don't think I can take care of all your needs? Do not be afraid. From now, you'll catch men. Do I believe that Peter fished from that point on? Sure he did, but not as an enterprise. I mean, I, I can't I bet you when they were walking on the shore and it came dinner time, Jesus said, you guys go catch some fish, and they went out and caught him in no time at all. You know, the one time that Jesus wanted to pay the, the poll tax, you remember, didn't have the money? Peter, go catch your Hook in the water, and they hook in the water. Fish comes out, and boom, there's it for me and you. I mean, but nevertheless, there was this holding on to what I can control versus giving all to Him. So I want to just end this with just asking a couple questions. Same questions that uh, I had to ask myself. Same questions I want to ask you. Where are you, Steve, in your continuum? on God's call in your life. Are we satisfied? And we talked about that on on Sunday. I'm okay as an eight. You know, I've got a good job. And if I do a good job, and just kind of mind my own business and don't put a Trump sticker on my car or don't tell anybody about Jesus and don't let them catch me in the lunchroom reading my Bible. And I just, you know, be a chameleon, then I'm okay. And I'll keep my job and everything's fine. And I'll serve the Lord on my spare time. I mean, that's highly acceptable today. That's what we pretty much preach. That's you don't want to be so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. Am I an eight, six, seven, my ten, my three? Whatever I am on that continuum, why am I there? Why am I comfortable with that? Why am I okay? Well, it's because I really don't know what he's called me to. I mean, if he if he would show me he wanted to be a missionary, then I would sell everything I have, and I would buy a ticket to uh, Uganda, and I would go be a missionary somewhere, but he's never really told me that. I don't know what God wants me to do with my life. I remember hearing the most convicting sermon I heard on all the time I lived in Pigeon Force, Tennessee, was an evangelist came to our church, and that was the question he was going to ask. I'm going to tell you what God wants you to do with your life. Oh, that's great. And what he said was, that really boils down to a couple questions. Where am I going to live? What job am I going to have? Who am I going to marry? Uh, what's going to happen tomorrow? You know, so that's all we care about. Where am I going to go to college? What kind of degree? Who am I going to marry? How many kids? Where am I going to live? I just want to know about those things. And so God, can you going to tell me what God wants me about those things? No. But he started going through the scriptures showing us exactly what God wants us to do with our life. You know, he wants us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and not worry about anything else. That's everybody. That's not just me, or you, or him, it's everybody. He wants us to pray without ceasing. He wants us to be filled with the Spirit. He wants us to lay ourselves down as a living sacrifice, taking all rights to ourself off, which is holy and acceptable unto the Lord, which is what we should reasonably do based on the mercies of God. He wants us to put on our spiritual arm. He wants us to pray without ceasing. He wants us to rejoice always. does not want us to be anxious for anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let a request be known unto God, and then experience this peace of God that passes all understanding. He wants us to forgive those people, no matter how many times they come and malign us every single day. That's a boatload of things to do, is it not? Doesn't say anything about where you live. Doesn't say anything about who you marry or how many kids you're going to have or what you do with your money or any of that kind of stuff. Doesn't talk about leaving your job or selling your car. Those are individual things he may or may not tell you to do. But it would take a lifetime just to be proficient in the things he's told us all to do. Would he not? So where are we on this continuum? What has he called us to do? And we figure that out. What's standing between where we are and where he wants us to be? And it usually is the fact there's certain things we're holding on to. Lord, I will follow you anywhere, but I'm not giving up my business. I've worked really hard. I inherited this from my dad. I got these two partners, James and John and their father, Zebedee. We work together as a tandem. We're well-known in the community. We're pretty well off. I've got a lakefront house here that I showed you, we're doing fine. So I will follow you in my spare time. I will follow you when I can, but I'm not going to give up the ability to create things with my own hands. When Jesus said, nah, it's not what I want. For you, Peter, I want to make you a fisher of men. For Steve, I may have something else for you to do. For Mo something totally different to do, a whole different mission field. Mo can reach people I I can't even get to the door with. So what is it standing between us and him? What are we refusing to give up? And if there are things in our life we are, or if we're struggling, or if we feel guilty, I don't know why I even come anymore. He's talking about being a 10 and I'm just a 6, you know, and and I I don't know how to change that. You're in good company. Don't get depressed. Don't quit. Don't fret because uh, the disciples were just like we are. In other words, sanctification, let me phrase this, it may happen to some people that way. I don't want to ever say God can't do anything like that. But my experience and everybody I've ever met and everybody I've ever read about, even the Apostle Paul, sanctification is done one step at a time. A couple steps forward and then a step back. The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I do. What a wretched man that I am. I can't even get it together, says Paul. So we're in good company. Each of us are on our own journey to completeness. And being complete in Christ for me may mean something vocationally or personally or the way it's fleshed out in my life different than it does for Karen or for Haley or for Jeanette or, or somebody else. Each of us have a different calling from God, but the point is, we trust completely and we be faithful and we do not give up. Amen. We do not give up. Now I want to close by showing you the if I say this the right way, the greatest sermon. For living the Christ like life I have ever heard in my entire life. It's it's this in a nutshell. It's realizing how evil the world is and what God has called you to do and not quitting. So if you don't mind, I'm gonna need you to turn uh turn this all the lights off. And here is here's my sermon in a nutshell.
1: You ain't gonna believe this, but you used to fit right here. I'd hold you up and say to your mother, this kid's gonna be the best kid in the world. This kid's gonna be somebody better than anybody ever knew. And you grew up good and wonderful. It was great just watching. Every day was like a privilege. Then the time come for you to be your own man and take on the world, and you did. But somewhere along the line, you changed. You stopped being you. I'm always going to love you no matter what. No matter what happens. you're my son, you're my blood. You're the best thing in my life. But until you start believing in yourself, you ain't going to have a life. Don't forget to visit your mother.